So we want to talk about preaching uh, panel, and I want you to jump in here as, as quickly as you can. Uh, in Christianity Today, there was an article recently called The Benedict Option. Did anybody see that in Christianity Today? Part of what it was talking about it was what Steve talked about in the first hour, uh, where there's a changing role of the church today. Our influence is diminished in some way. And so uh, in that, it talks about maybe what we need to do is retreat a bit from our culture and be a little bit more apart to ourselves in order to impact. There's other people that have come up with different philosophies uh, of, of what it's like to engage the culture. So I wonder, Dr. Lyon, do you mind if I start with you? Grab that from, from definitely you should talk before Zach. Uh, tell us a little bit of your philosophy uh, for engaging the culture in light of the fact that it seems as though the church has lost some of its influence. Uh, yes, I've been thinking about this a lot. In fact, I've been talking about it. Uh, and I do, there, there, there's the Benedictine option, and then there's the uh, Bonhoeffer option, uh, the confessing church, uh, which I think we can see that there. I'd like to take, I think we need to take a look at the third option, a third way, and that is the Wesleyan way. And, and I don't mean the Wesleyan church. I'm, I mean the denomination. I'm talking about John Wesley's way. When we look at, at Wesley in 18th century England, uh, the church was definitely on the margins. Uh, you had the Anglican church, which was in bed with the government. And so that there was a, all that control. And then you had those that were not accepted at all. Uh, and then we see what Wesley did. And, and as we look at that, and I could go through the laws that were changed, you could see the conversion that took place, literally revival swept the country because it was about the transformation as Steve talked about. Got to get rid of this water here, Dave, because uh, I got to use my hands. Um, and uh, it was about the transformation that took place with people and with communities and literally with a nation. And his words that he said were spreading scriptural holiness to reform a nation. Many times we only say spreading scriptural holiness, but it's that other part was always there. And it is that power of the Holy Spirit that, that, that Steve again was talking about that makes the difference that did the transformation. And so, many historians have said that it was the Wesleyan revivals that saved England from the bloody revolution that France had. And I think it's interesting, in 1930, there was a, a sociologist who did a study by the name of William Warner. He did a study on those, uh, that, those revivals and that transformation that took place in England. And he didn't know what to call it, but then this, I thought these words were so interesting. He said, it, it, the only thing I can believe it is the mystic power of sanctification that makes benevolent motives work. Isn't that powerful? That is about, and he was not a believer. He was just a sociologist trying to figure out what all that was about. So I think as we look at where we are now, I think that's that the, the, the Wesleyan holiness option is there. I just might add that the Missio Alliance is a, group of many of you know Missio Alliance, but just a group of many denominations and different groups. And we were there in Wesley Seminary, helped, uh, was part of a sponsor that we just had a conference the end of April. By the way, thanks. I just want to say I had this great privilege to be uh, the interim vice president of Wesley Seminary this last year. And this is the best faculty in the world. So I want to give you that big plug right now. And I'm not being paid now, see, so I can say that. <laughs> but uh, it's, it was wonderful to work. So they're, they're great. But, and so we helped sponsor that. N.T. Wright was one of the speakers for this. But it was interesting that they asked, called me and said, well, you do a session on holiness. 
And they said, I mean, sanctification. So I want you to talk about that. And then they said, you and Alan Hirsch, we're going to have you do this together. So Alan Hirsch and I did this session on holiness and what it meant. Not the, and many people still had the old ideas of what holiness was as far as legalism and et cetera, et cetera. But what it really meant to live a holy life. It was very fascinating as we were. But anyway, Alan Hirsch started that by asking, okay, what do you know about the Pharisees? And he just listed all these, and people just started yelling out, Pharisees are this, Pharisees are this, Pharisees are this. When he finished, he said, we have just named who white evangelicals are. That was pretty alarming. And I had to finish, I had to pick up after that one. (laughs) I'll quit. I could go on forever. You you just handed it off to a white evangelical. Great. (laughs) That's great. I thought my introduction with Steve was bad. Man. Okay, uh, Alex, you know what? You engage so much. Grab a, grab a mic there. Can you pass that down? Uh, Alex, you engage so much uh, in the community in a variety of roles. Uh, how do you see your philosophy and the way you've articulated that for engaging the culture? You know, one of the things that's really interesting is, is when you start looking at the culture and you start looking at what's happening around the church, one of the things I often tell people is that it, we have to start looking inside the structure of the church, and we have to figure out how is the structure of the church really meeting the spiritual needs of the communities that we serve. Because when you were looking at how the culture is shifting, one of the greatest things, thank you for giving permission to use the hands, by the way, highly emotional communicator. Uh, but one of the things that's really important is that we have to engage people where they are. When you hear that that age group that Steve talked about, those individuals who are not churched, we often wonder why can't they conform to the way we want them? Well, they haven't been taught the way we have when you're over 50, right? Okay, (laughs) just just need to make sure. But but they haven't been taught that way. And so I, I actually had to take a step back and look at it. So I came from, you know, in my, in my younger days, from a military structure to a law enforcement structure to very rigid structures. And one of the things about those structures were that when you were told to do something, you didn't necessarily question. You could find yourself in a whole world of heat. Some of the military folks in here are laughing because they know. But you didn't question that. You did it. And you did it with whatever consequence was assigned to it. And so when you take a step back and look at that now, it is no longer you just do it. It is, why must I do it? Why must I do it that way? Why do I have to do it now? Why can't it wait? And so when you start looking at that, the the questions are not to be defiant, but they're for role clarification. Therefore, purpose clarification. Therefore, identity clarification. And if we're not making our faith walk something that people can identify with, that can connect with, can, that can, can become life in them, then we're going to miss the mark. So the whole idea was, is to understand that what's happening around us is not necessarily bad. It is actually what is challenging challenging us to get to the place where we belong, challenging us to get to that place of prayer, 
get to that place of fasting and understanding, reading the scripture, learning the scripture, but then really how do we live it? How do we apply it? Because that's the fundamental question that so many people really want answered. How do I apply this gospel that you tell me about? And if I can learn how to apply it, then I can learn how to live it. Great, great insights. Uh, we're talking kind of at the philosophical level. In a minute, we're going to get practical. But anybody else want to comment on this question of how do you articulate engaging the culture uh, these days philosophically? Anyone want to jump in? Um, this is um, the unusual kind of uh, <laughs> question since I am a preacher. And uh, I preach basically every, every Sunday to a cultured group of people. And um, I think one of the things that we must do is um, we have to understand that we are not the change agents. We are to position people so that God can change them. Uh, so that I look at my job when uh, I look at my, my calling as a positioner. So I stand to position through what? Through the preaching of the word that's so alive. And through that positioning word, because all I can do is position the people, and God always will do the changing. It is not for me to decide, uh, and it's not to me to uh, uh, try to be so much involved in trying to make them change as I must let God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of a relevant word uh, change them. And I think uh, that's one way you impact the culture through uh, your personal positioning so that people can be uh, transformed so that they can be the influencers beyond where you're preaching on Sundays or wherever else you're preaching. Great thoughts. Zach, want to add to that? I don't think I have a philosophy that I've thought about, but um, I was at a meeting of city leaders uh, this morning, and I told them I was coming to this event and what it was about. And the city leaders laughed, and they thought, like, we, they, this is their words. They said, we have exiled faith leaders for decades in Logansport, but we just can't seem to exile you. You refuse to be exiled. And what they meant by that was, we were a declining church, we have an immigrant legal office now that has served over 1,500 immigrants. Uh, I'm allowed into the schools to talk about immigration issues and diversity and teach people on cross-cultural. We open a community coffee shop that's open 80 hours a week. And so I might not have them Sunday morning, but I don't care. Because I have them the rest of the week because I refuse to be exiled in my community. We have meetings three times a day. Like the schools have meetings in our church now. The city has meetings in our church. We have become a central feature of what our city is. And I have a small city, just like 18, 20,000 people. But, but maybe it's because I don't self-identify as a pastor or a preacher. I still view myself as like a missionary. And so I say, you can try to push me to the sidelines, but you're not going to make it happen at the bridge because we have become all things to all people. And so our community might not come to church on Sunday, but they need coffee. So they're going to be there. And so I refuse to be exiled. And that's kind of how we've kind of lived that out. And in the same way, I refuse to be told that there are taboo topics that I can't preach or teach on. 
Uh, and when I became a pastor, Christy Lipscomb, great article, Google it, about skipping Samaria. But that radically changed my view on what it means to be a preacher. You can't tell me that if my people are talking in the coffee shop from Monday or Saturday about the refugee bar and that crisis, that I have to change what I was planning on preaching about on Sunday to talk about that topic, because that's what the people in my community are talking about. And time and time again, we hear, we haven't heard pastors talk on the issue of immigration or on poverty, or on Black Lives Matter. And it's like, why not? We have exiled ourselves because I don't know if we're scared or what, and I just refuse to, to, to be in the margins. Um, I want to get to the practical now. So uh, there's this saying that a lot of times us as preachers talk about, that we should preach with the Bible in one hand and what in the other? The newspaper. Who read a newspaper today? Okay, there's five or six holdouts. Uh, So some of us are still reading newspaper. I still love the newspaper. Uh, But it seems like that, I wonder if we can update that phrase, and maybe our panel can help us do that. It's a classic idea, and of course the idea is that we would not be just about Scripture, but that we would tie the Scripture to the cultural relevance of what's happening today. How would you fill in the blank if we uh, open that up again? What would you say today is a very important thing to connect practically to in preaching? Let's start down there with Aaron and maybe Tom. Uh, I was reflecting on that uh, question, and and what I think uh, is most important is to recognize that essentially we live in the newspaper. We are presented with the vision of the world all the way around us, and so we need to preach with the Bible in one hand and then the Bible in the other hand, because it's reorienting ourselves to our story. Uh, I think that uh, why this is so important is that um, we have always been in exile. The first couple were exiled by God. And so us to have an experience of being in exile is not new to people of faith. It's where we've always been, and it's been God's story of drawing us home. Whenever we have the Holy Spirit at work within us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, I think the last one is the one that witnesses the most to our culture, which is self-control. We live in a culture that does not know self-control. It chases after fixes, it chases after excitement, it chases after visions, it chases after dreams. We need to reorient ourselves, not to being relevant always to something outside us, but to um, be relevant to the story that God is telling. So I I say, uh, a great place to start, maybe maybe we put the Bible down for half a second, but preach with the Bible in one hand and the Bible in the other, so that people who are also experiencing what it means to be in exile, simply because they're human beings, and they don't yet feel at home, we can speak to them because that's our story. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us, drawing us home and making this world our home as he's setting up home in us. Good answer. Now we're all gonna feel really shallow for saying anything but the Bible, though. So just gonna take the pressure off, Tom. If your answer was Facebook, that's okay. That was was a very good answer. That was an iPhone. No, No, I think think we... What would it look like for us to say we have the Bible in one hand and the hand of our neighbor in the other? Carl Barth talks about the impossible possibilities, the shared narrative of life, and how that as we live out life, we can bear faithful witness to the realities of Christ and how we've been transformed, we've been made new. And as we begin to talk about our neighbors and we're sharing stories with our neighbor, we're also being influenced by our neighbors. I mean... 
you can't preach a sermon unless you've talked to a neighbor. How can you articulate and exegete your culture if you don't have the hand of a neighbor? So when I go to Starbucks and talk to Tom, the, the manager of the local Starbucks, and he begins to tell me that he grew up in Sunday school, but he doesn't see that there's any relevance because he doesn't know that God can transform a life, I can share with him how that, that there was a lady who walked into my church on Easter Sunday and was ready to put a gun to her head and gave her life to Christ because she watched her daughter get baptized. If we have the hand of our neighbor, we know what they're dealing with. We know, and we can begin to tell them the story of Yahweh, of God, Jehovah, who can raise the dead, who can clothe people, who can heal people. And if that's the reality of God, then why are we not sharing the story with our neighbors and hearing their stories and being able to to exegete the gospel to them? Sorry, it's dangerous when you put a mic in my hand, my friend. I'm sorry. Great word. Anyone else want to add? Uh, now, really, I do think that uh, <laughs> there needs to be a saturation of the Word of God in our lives. We need to be saturated to a lot of preachers are not that familiar with the Bible except for studying for a sermon and that kind of thing rather than letting the Word saturate their own lives, their own mind. And they become masters of that Word because you can't transform that to where people are until it has transformed your life. That's your connection with God. You must have, you must have a knowledge of the word of God, not just for knowledge's sake, but for transformation that starts with you first. The next thing that uh, if you're going to transform any culture, beginning with your church and stretching out, there must be a, a season of prayer. There must be more than just season of prayer. Many churches don't, don't even have a viable prayer ministry. They do, you know, like we pray when we get ready to eat so we won't choke. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have any value. It's just something we've been taught to do and so we're going to eat. And it's like my children. I have two boys and uh, uh, about two years ago, my youngest son, we were at home and we said, Jared, what we want you to do is pray. He said, grace. <laughs> that was the prayer. Grace. Let's eat. Uh, so so we, I, I think that we need to bring some supernatural into our setting. And we're not going to bring anything supernatural into our setting until we bring God into our setting. Because God trans, transforms not only the preacher, not only the the congregants, but also the society around us, if we have the courage, we have the courage to preach the word, to be modeled by the word, and have a prayer life that has some value. Amen. Amen. I'd like to say one, one more thing, and that is, I think we cannot be afraid to be invited into conversations with different groups that are very unlike us, and, and that's where we're going to finally... Uh, understand, but also when the Holy Spirit can just speak through us in those, in those those moments and those times, uh, and I, we tend, and it happens because our schedules do this, our friendships do this. Uh, we we tend to isolate with people that are like us, and we just do it naturally because it feels good. But to be with people who are not like us and who have different value systems, God will open those doors. I want you to know He will open those doors if you'll walk through them. 
But many times we're afraid to walk through them because, we, oh, well, maybe I, may, what if somebody sees me? Then they'll see me associated with that particular group. Have you ever thought that God has called you to transform that group with his power, not the other way around? Uh, so I think that that's very important when I think about the newspaper and the, and the, the gospel. It, you, you are now that, that piece that God is calling uh, to. Beautiful, yeah. Friend of sinners, right? Okay, I have one more question for the group, and then I want to warn all of you here. In a moment, I'm going to ask you if you have a question for one person in particular, or maybe the whole panel. It'd be helpful if you did direct it to a certain person uh, so that we can kind of get started in that way. So just a minute, I'm going to do that. But my last question, and I'm not going to name names. You can just jump out here and jump into this question. When you think about the idea of preaching in exile, the challenge that, that uh, Steve gave us a moment ago, when you think about that challenge, what advice do you have to your fellow preachers for living in that capacity and, and meeting that challenge? And then what cautions do you have? So uh, advice might be just something you think that is important when you think of preaching in exile. A caution might be like, hey, we need to make sure we don't fill in the blank. Who'd like to jump in on that? Uh, one uh, advice I would give, and uh, I've watched my parents go through this, is to see uh, and empower your people to see their suffering and the faithfulness of God to sustain them in the midst of suffering as a way to earn their voice to speak and to preach. Um, when, just before we moved to Indiana, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and was going through a, a whole set of chemotherapy treatments and all the things that go along with it. They had a Muslim who was a nurse and he felt uh, impinged upon himself to explain to him while he was a Muslim, he was not mean. And my mother, uh, seizing the moment to be a preacher, was absolutely affirming that we know you're not mean. You have treated us like Jesus would treat us as he nursed and was, was part of that. My dad, who had been a, has been a Christian for as long as anybody in our community could know, as they watched him go through terminal diagnosis, that's when his opportunity to preach came. Because people weren't impressed with his life when it was all together. They were impressed with his life as it didn't fall apart while it was falling apart. Empower your people to know that their suffering earns the right to have a word to say about the God who's sustaining them, not always the God who's blessing, blessing them. Wow. If, if I can add just a little bit of additional perspective here. One of the things that I think happens so, so often when we're preaching in exile, if you would, we become down and out it's easy to become disconnected. And we certainly can become out of touch with each other, with sometimes even reality. And so, you know, I'm, I'm being real cautious here because I found out that Steve Deneff likes to steal my material every now and then. Uh, yeah. That whole soul shift idea of yours was great. Yeah. <laughs> we milked that sucker. But, but I want to... I want you to think about something. Uh, you know, this time of year, you know, commencements are taking place, weddings are taking place, and all kinds of celebratory events are taking place. And we give cards, and a lot of times those cards have this favorite scripture that we love to quote. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right? Jeremiah 29, 11. The plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We know that. We get excited about that. Yes. Yes. Good stuff. 
The problem is we forget about what comes before that. And what we forget about is that sometimes God gives us an appointed time that we're going to be dealing with what we're dealing with. It may not be 70 years, but he gives us an appointed time. But during that appointed time, he gives us a set of expectations. He gives us a, a set of expectations that will continue to be happy, that will continue to labor like we're not in exile. We'll continue to live well like we're not in exile. We'll continue to do well like we're not in exile. And sometimes, guess what? Don't act like you're in exile. Don't behave like you're in exile. Behave like you're in your own land, able to live the way that you want to live. In other words, don't give up your identity. But stand fast and stand firm. Because you will come out of it at an appointed time. Not yours, not mine, not moms, not dads, not brothers, not sisters, not pastors. But the appointed time that God has for you. And what life lessons are you learning while you're there? What are you picking up that you can carry to someplace else if you find yourself in exile again? Because at the end of the day, I, 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 I found out that we forget about the stuff in the middle. We forget about what we're supposed to be continuing to do. And then when we come out on the other side, we forget that he tells us if we seek him, we will find him. He's not trying to hide from us, but he's trying to get us to the place where we seek him with everything that's on the inside of us. So that we can become everything that he wants us to become. I think sometimes it is an exile when you have to have some experimentation and not, not only that, you have trial and error. You need to find your own rhythm. You need to find your own rhythm for sermon preparation and preaching. You need to rethink uh, preaching uh, because so many years I preached to impress and not to impact. And that happens all the time, particularly when I first got out of seminary. Uh, of course, you know, and this is no reflection, but I must say it, uh, all of my sermons were so academic until everybody needed a PhD at my church to understand anything I was saying. And I did that for a long, long time because probably my own pride and because I was trying to impress rather than impact the lives of people. There is no one-size-fit-all uh, approach to preaching. That's why you have to find your own rhythm, uh, develop yourself. Uh, many times, you know, we go to seminary, we finish, and we don't preach. Nothing like we've been taught in the classroom, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> I think Tom had something, and that'll have to be our last one on this question. And then, and then I'm going to go to you for your questions, so be ready. I had a mentor tell me once to stand and deliver. Yeah. Don't fear exile. Don't fear standing in the middle of a valley of dry bones where the people have been declaring my hope is gone, my life, I'm dead, and I'm dry, and they acknowledge it. Stand and deliver. Speak to the bones, and then speak to the Spirit. And watch God do a work.
Amen. Amen. So uh, we don't really have time for questions, but we're going to take a few questions. Uh, we're going to take that six minutes back, Steve. Uh, so who's got a question here? Here you go. Can you stand? I can. <laughs> Resurrection power. <laughs> uh, quick question. Okay, so based on you know, what Steve had shared um, in this exile place, and uh, you, know, you have congregants that are on the left, and you've got congregants that are on the right, and you are their pastor, and how do you speak prophetically into that tension point and not alienate, damage, wound people that are on the right or on the left? It's all you, Aaron. Third rail, baby. I'm, Go Canadian. I'm, yeah, I was. Good. I, I don't really know because I'm I'm from Canada, so. Um, why would you not want to wound and maim people that you're preaching to? Yeah, maybe, maybe you don't quite love them in the way that, that the word is loving them. And man, I, I'm a preacher and I'm a pastor, and so it, it takes me to work up a lot of courage to, to wound and maim some of those that, that need to be wounded and maimed. But I would just kind of question the premise that there, there is death that needs to happen that it, and that is happening, and that's not limited to one nation. Right? That, that's found in in the exhortation from Peter that we should all be living as exiles, right? We, we should be pursuing uh, an exiled life because that, that's going to involve death. And um, death is, is the route to resurrection. So I, just, I would encourage you, maybe there are some things that need to be killed. Maybe there is some offense that needs to happen. And that's a scary place, a scary Joanne. thing to do. Uh, yeah, I think, I think one of the things that needs to be clarified when we first hear, the, and Steve did a great job of defining what we mean by exile, but the normal person sitting in the pew, when you hear exile, that seems separatist. That's separatist, I, I'm separate, uh, I'm surrounded. So we need to redefine exile, preaching in exile. Number two, I think another great example that I think where we are in this day is pre-Constantinian. It's the early church. It's, I'm talking about up to year 300. And how did the church, how, how did they operate? They they acted, and, and Paul does a great line in uh, Romans, the 15, 15th chapter, where he says, uh, how does Christ accomplish his work? Word and deed, signs and wonders, power of the Spirit. And so I think we, we can kind of begin to take a look at preaching in exile, but is also like the early church did before Constantine. And the church grew rapidly. And yes, there was persecution. And it's, it's, I mean, you can tell, they took care of the poor. They did all this. They brought in immigrants. People were saved. The rich began to look at this. So it was, it was intergenerational. Rodney Stark does a great job with this in the triumph of Christianity. And it was multi-ethnic. It was uh, rich and poor. It was everything. It, all of that. That was the church. Well, the church grew. And many historians believe that by the time Constantine came in, it was 40% of the Roman Empire was Christian. So Constantine said, wow, this is a pretty big political block. I better bring them in. And we know what happened. And uh, Robert Weber has a great line in his book, The Secular Saint, that he wrote, I don't know, back in the 70s or 80s. I've never gotten away from that line, where he says, as we know, persecution happened during that time. But uh, he said, the hunters, after Constantine, the hunters became the, I mean, the hunted, I'm sorry, the hunted became the hunters. 
And that's exactly what happened when the church turned and went to another power rather than the power of God. So I think, I think if we can take a look at both of those models of the pre-Constantine church and then exile, that helps us understand preaching in exile better. I think Bonhoeffer's piece, The Confessing Church, it is the Jesus church. I made a statement not long ago that got published someplace, but I just said, we're going to have to decide, are we going to be a nationalistic church? I'm talking about the U.S. now. Are we going to be a nationalistic church, civil religion, or are we going to be a Jesus church? And when we start preaching Jesus, then no one, you can't, you can't argue with that. And so then that takes the left and the right and begins to say, let's focus on Jesus and what did he teach and how do we live this out? Amen. Amen. Another question. Raise your hand. Oh, go ahead and give that. Yeah, real practical question. We talked about uh, declaring a gospel and describing a gospel that is powerful and transformative and sending people out to actually live that out. What are some other ways in addition to preaching in the church life that you give space for God to do that powerful transformational work and that you do capture and retell stories? Uh, Steve mentioned the goal wasn't for just testimony conversion, but how do you actually bring that feedback loop into the life of the church? Anyone want to jump in on that? Well, storytelling is fantastic. And as people, I don't want to talk here. Uh, We're on the panel. Uh, as, as people, as, I, I mean, I see this over and over in churches. Your church is an example. Uh, as people uh, experience and are doing the work of, of Jesus, as, for example, with immigration and reaching immigrants and whatever, and they come back and tell the stories and it, excite, it, it, it impacts other people to do it. It's the great, greatest model the greatest motivator, and it's the power of the Spirit in the story. Jesus told stories, and that's how he did it. I was just on a panel this last week in some in hipster Indianapolis. I did, I did not belong. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, but they talked about uh, your church down there. They told stories about your church. And, I mean, it was not a, it was not a religious thing. The head of the panel was a Muslim. But he talked about Zach's church. He's popular with the hipsters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at the hat. Look at the hat. Okay, uh, one more question. This will be the last one. Okay, right here. All right, this is for uh, Pastor Alex. I know that you've done some work in Indianapolis. Um, but I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the high school graduation rate in Marion. I'm looking at the high school graduation rate in Indianapolis public school system is 68%. A third of those high school seniors aren't graduating. I'm talking to other Christians that I know, and they're concerned that social justice issues aren't gospel issues. And I'm just wondering when we're going to get to a place where when a third of our high school seniors aren't graduating is a church issue, and that we don't even have to have that conversation. How do we get to that place? Well, I don't think it's a matter of how we get to that place. We are at that place. Mm -hmm. And, and the reason why we're at that place is because when you start looking at the future of our communities and you start looking at the future of, of, of who we are, one of the things I, I have to ask is, why aren't we connecting? Because I would take your question and move it a step further. I would take that question and say, why is there such a heroin epidemic or opiate epidemic? Why is there? It, 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 because we have a tendency as a people to focus on the symptom of the problem, 
but we don't ever get want to talk about what the root causes of the problems are because that makes us have to examine our role and, and failing to do what we should do. Uh, I was talking with, you know, interesting that you bring that up because I was talking with a gentleman who, who claims to be an atheist, but I can always get him to talk, come back and talk to me about what God needs to do. So I'm still working on that one with him. Uh, but, but we were talking about this very issue, and he was saying, when are the churches going to step up and tell the story? And, and, and I started laughing because he said, well, what's funny? I said, well, here's the deal. I would have to take you back to a book that I read one time called Deuteronomy. And I would have to take you back to where we have to start engaging the family structures. Then I have to go back, when we go back and engage those family structures, we have to go back and visit storytelling. One of the things that we've, I found out is that we've taken away from many of our young people that voice that they have. When, when we are in our communities, especially here in Marion, the second highest in the state in generational poverty, you must understand that in generational poverty, how information is transitioned from one generation to the next is by storytelling. When students cannot storytell, that's why a lot of times music becomes so popular for students. So that especially rap, we wonder why everybody wants to rap because it's storytelling. And so if we can really tell the gospel story in a way that connects with people and begin to bring people in, we, we like youth groups, and I hope I don't offend anyone. Oh, that's right. Offenses must come. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but, but the reality of it is we, youth groups, we bring them in for all kinds of activities. But when do we really sit down with them and begin to talk to them about the nature of Christ? When do we begin to really talk to them about the love of Christ? But more importantly, I'm not saying talk to them in words. I'm talking about now demonstrating it. When do we demonstrate that nature? It's important for them to grow and learn beyond. I heard it earlier, and man, that, that was powerful. Too many preachers wait till they get ready to study the sermon, then they want to get deep in the word. No, 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 no. I'm bivocational, and I found out if I'm going to preach an impactful message, I've got to be deep in the word all week long, all month long. All year long. And that means every now and then I've got to play it on CD when I'm busy. I have to read it. I have to study it. I, I have to write it upon the tablets of my eyes. How do you do that? Memorizing it. Reflecting on it. Making those things important. Because one of the things that we fail to realize, you cannot not teach. You're going to teach something. What is it that you're really teaching? I'm so thankful for this, and you know what? Uh, our time is out. In a moment, I'm going to ask uh, Reverend Adams actually to pray for us to close. But would you all please stand with me? Uh, we're back here at 8 o'clock in the morning, correct? Right here in this room. And I'm so thankful for everybody who's engaged in this panel. Earlier, you talked, Reverend Adams, about prayer. Would you pray for us as preachers in the room? Thank you so much. Now, Father, we love you. We love you but we are loved by you first because we cannot love ourselves nor our ministry unless we know that you love us. We thank you for calling us to such a 
awesome task of men and women who stand between hell and heaven, between right and wrong, between liberal and conservative, between the left and the right. And you have positioned us to be in the middle so that we can hear from you and hear from your word and be empowered by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the word that was shared with us tonight to challenge all of us, to challenge our minds, to challenge, and then to give us courage to speak in a generation and a culture that seemed to be falling apart around us in spite of the church, in spite of the church. In spite of preaching, in, in spite of thousands of churches and millions of Christians all over America, it seems like the culture is folding all around us. And so what we need, Father, is freshness from your word, a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit so that we can stand in spite of and preach a word that is not only eternal, but will set communities and homes and families and lives and preachers and churches on fire so that we can let you transform our culture in our society. And we'll keep giving you glory. Even though we are preachers in exile, we know that you are powerful, God, that even moves dry bones. Oh, son of man, <laughs> can these bones live? Mm -hmm. And the only answer he can say, you know it. <laughs> and for Father, that same message is to us now. Can these bones live? Mm -hmm. Our word is, you know. Preach to the bones. Speak to the bones. And that's our challenge tonight as we preach from exile. And you will raise up people, homes, communities, marriages, young people, churches, schools. And we will be a witness that you have called us to be in a world that's so dark. In the name of Jesus, we pray. All the men and women of God will say. Amen. Amen.